far as we know, in the more than two-decade history of the Living Church of God, we have never given a World Tomorrow telecast on the subject of tithing. Now, we do have a Bible study course, Lesson 17, on the subject. Uh, We also have a whiteboard on the subject titled, Tithing, a Biblical Key to Financial Peace of Mind. But we do not have a telecast on the subject up until now. Now, the reason for this should be evident. Uh, All our materials are given away free of charge. And I might add, free of pressure. Because, while some programs out there, some uh, individuals, some Nonprofits may give things out free of charge. They pressure, encourage you to, to give. And so I'm sure all of us have experienced times when we've walked into a grocery store and we're checking out and the person asks us, uh, would you like to donate a dollar to thus and such? And you feel, well, here's a person talking to me directly. Do I Am I so chintzy that I don't want to donate a dollar? And so you feel pressured to do so. And we genuinely do not want people to feel pressured to, to donate. What we have is given free of charge. Christ said, freely you've received, freely give. And that's a principle that we genuinely live by. And I think all of us know that our program is different from all the others that are out there. Even some of the churches of God have gone to soliciting donations in their literature. Uh, Not all of them, but uh, some of them have. I know one of the the major ones. I was quite shocked that they were doing so. And then other individuals who started their churches are pressuring people to give their homes and their life savings. We don't do that. We want to keep away from all that sort of thing. The closest thing that we come to what might be called a solicitation of donations is that in our websites, on our websites, we have a donate button located in various places. And the reason for that is that there are people who would like to donate and they want to know how. But as one or two people can attest to the fact, I've tried to make sure that we do not make our donate links prominent. Uh, We don't have at the bottom of the page in great big uh, letters, donate. And we try to put it within the other donate button, or not donate, but the other buttons, so that it's there if somebody's looking for it, but it's not in someone's face that donate, donate, donate. We don't flash it uh, as, as some others might do. We don't want to do it that way. We are different. And so we do these things carefully and thoughtfully, but we do it because sincerely, sincere people do want to donate, and we, we do have uh, donate links on our websites. But we must be careful not to be more righteous than God is. For example, in Acts, the 20th chapter, in Acts 20, the Apostle Paul was speaking to the elders at Ephesus, and he's going back a little bit in history of how he first met them and how he first preached the gospel to them, and he says here, I'll begin in verse 18, 
And when they had come to him, he didn't go to Ephesus on this occasion. He invited them to meet him at a location. He said to them, You know from the first day that I came to you in Asia, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. Notice verse 20, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house. So he taught them publicly everything that was helpful for them, but also more privately from house to house. And then he talks about testifying to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance toward God. What all is involved in repentance toward God? Let's look at verse 24, I'm sorry, 27. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God. He said, I've not shunned to declare that to you. Now, what is contained in the whole counsel of God? Well, let's look at some of the things that Paul taught. 1 Corinthians, the 7th chapter. This is a verse that some of you are likely familiar with. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 19, it says, Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Contrary to what many people think, the Apostle Paul did not do away with the law of God. Not that he could do away with it. No man has the ability to do away with the law of God, but some think that he uh, told us that we didn't have to keep the law. And yet here he says, circumcision is nothing, uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God. That's what matters. In Romans, the seventh chapter, Romans 2 I'm sorry, Romans 7. And verse 7, he says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. Now, very clearly, the law that he's talking about there is the Ten Commandments or the Ten Commandments, plural. But the specific one that he mentions is, you shall not covet. Now, coveting has a lot to do with money, with a lot of things in general. It could be sexual lust or coveting. It could be monetary. It could be any number of things that are contained in that. But he said, I would not have known except the law had said, you shall not covet. And then down... In verse 19, he says, I'm sorry, verse 12. Down in verse 12, he says, Therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and is just and good. So Paul was not against the law of God. Now, what is it that is contained in the law of God? Well, he mentions coveting, but let's go back to Exodus, the 20th chapter, where the Ten Commandments are given, also Deuteronomy, the fifth chapter, but we'll look at Exodus in this case. And in verse 15, it gives a four-word statement, you shall not steal. You shall not steal. That's pretty direct. 
uh, not a lot of uh, explanation of it. It just says, don't steal. Now, clearly, Paul taught against stealing from our neighbors. Let's go back to the book of Romans. Romans, the 13th chapter. And we'll read verse 9. But let me go back to verse 8. He says, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. So he says, don't owe anybody anything. Do we owe God anything? But owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. That's what the law is all about. It's about loving one another. But that does not do away with the law, of course, as we've already seen. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that sums up loving our neighbor as ourself, but we know that Christ was asked the question about the most important commandment in the law, and we can go back to the book of Matthew, and let's notice that. In Matthew, the 22nd chapter, says, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So we know that when Paul made the statement, all of this is summed up, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, he's focusing on the second half of the Ten Commandments. But very clearly, there are two laws. One is to love God, and the other is to love our neighbor. That's a summation of them, you might say. Notice over in Ephesians, the fourth chapter. Ephesians 4, and we'll look at verse 28. This is for the converted individual, of course. He says, let him who steal, I'm sorry, let him who stole, steal no longer. So there were those individuals who were thieves who came into the church. And I think if we look at the spirit of the law, probably all of us have been guilty of stealing at one time or another. I remember as a young fella, I used to like those art gum erasers. I don't know if anybody even knows what those are anymore. They were for very delicate work. They weren't the hard one that we used at school, but art gum erasers. I always liked the feel of them. And I was a a big-time thief. I stole one out of a dime store, uh, which is something that was stealing. It was wrong. And I do remember taking a little bit of change, I think a nickel, from one of my friend's Holmes, his father put his change out there, and I, I did that. I was probably about eight or nine years of age, about the same age as the art gum racer. 
And some have cheated on their income tax. And there are various other ways that we steal. But he says to those who have stolen, steal no longer. But rather give him, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. In other words, not only don't steal, but he's saying we ought to be out there laboring, working for the good of others. Not just ourselves, but even for the good of others. When you look at that, of what he's saying. Now, let me ask a very simple question. Which is a greater sin? Stealing from your neighbor or stealing from your creator? We need to think about that. Because too often people think of stealing from God as being a rather minor point because God understands. He understands my circumstance. Why is it that people think that God is to be less respected than their landlord? Maybe it's because we make God in our own image, but we can't do that with our neighbor. We can't do that with our landlord because he's going to come knocking on our door. And God doesn't always do it so openly or blatantly. So in today's sermon... I'm going to address the importance of the law of tithing. And if you want a a title, it's Will a Man Rob God? Tithing was a hot topic on the CompuServe forum. Now, I don't think that's even around anymore, but 25, 30 years ago, when many of us came out of the worldwide church that had gone astray, A lot of people were out there on the CompuServe forum and various other forums, I'm sure, as well. And tithing was a hot topic. There were those who thought we didn't have to tithe, just charitable giving. Just give God whatever you decide to give him. I don't know that anybody ever had his mind changed on the forum I was encouraged to get on it for a while, and I did. And after some months, I realized that this was a soap opera. You could go away from it and come back in six months, and the topics would be all the same. It would just be, some cases, new players, and most cases, the old players, arguing over the same doctrines that they were before, and I realized that's rather futile. But it was a hot topic. Now, if the Sabbath is the test commandment for the world, tithing is, for some that are in the church, the test commandment. Because many people who keep the Sabbath have not reconciled to the fact that they are to tithe. Now, I know that there are people on fixed incomes who may have... Uh, Income that we don't consider tithable. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the fact that, sadly, in the church of God, we have some who have not been faithful in tithing. The book of Malachi is often used, and I find it rather humorous, because there are so many ministries out there, so many 
religions out there who try to do away with everything in the Old Testament. But the one law that they turn to, of all the laws, is found in the book of Malachi. Well, let's turn over to Malachi for a few minutes. And let's look at uh, some of the things here. I remember one individual on that CompuServe forum that said, well, Malachi was written for the priesthood. It was not written for the members. It was not written for the nation. It was written for the priest. And so it had to do with the tithe of the Levites to the priests. That's how he reasoned around it. And he said, someone of your understanding should be able to figure that out. So I wrote back. Malachi 1 verse 1, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. It isn't just for the Levites and the priests, although they are mentioned prominently here. As we shall see, it's written to the nation as a whole. It's written to all of God's people. In the second chapter, we see, and I'm not going to read everything here, but what we see is that This was an argumentative, contrary, uh, you know, group of individuals, a nation that was contrary to God. They were cynical. And the reasons for that, if you go back a little bit in the history of it, you have Haggai and Zechariah that were prophets during the time of, of Israel coming out of captivity or Judah coming out of captivity. And the Jews had started building the temple, and then they failed to finish it. And so Haggai and Zechariah came along, and they stirred the people up to start building again. And when you read Haggai, as an example, I think it's about verse 7 or chapter 2, someplace around there. He said, you know, essentially, if you build, then the glory of this house will be greater than that of Solomon's, and peace will come to the earth. And Malachi is written some years later, quite a few years later, and they thought all those prophecies failed. And what good is it to serve God? Not realizing that there was a time gap. That from that time until the coming of the Messiah Christ, Christ would come to that latter temple, and that glory was far greater than anything that Solomon could give. The Messiah did come to that temple, and and even uh, a duality for the future. So it it was something that the people didn't really understand. They just saw it as being, this is the way it is, and Haggai said, well, this the glory of this house will be greater, but we, we don't see it. And so they were cynical. Time had gone by. All their problems hadn't been solved. And so they were argumentative and cynical. And so here we read in chapter 2 and verse 17. He says, You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, In what way have we wearied him? When you read through Malachi, you find that they always have an answer for God. Or a question. A comeback. No matter what it was, whatever the subject was that was brought up, they always had a comeback. A cynical question. Yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? And that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? Well, people do evil, and they're blessed. 
but we're not. And so they say, where is the God of justice? He says he's going to send his messenger. You could read through the book of Malachi. I encourage you to do so. But let's get down to the part that is often quoted here on this subject. Verse 6 of chapter 3. It says, For I am the eternal, I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. You know, he, he criticized them, the people, and he criticized the priesthood for not teaching certain things, not holding up the standards. He says, yet from the days of your fathers, you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the eternal of hosts. But you said, in what way shall we return? You see, there was the attitude again. Well, what are you talking about? We don't know what you're, you're saying. So Malachi says in verse 8, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me, but you say, here again, they come back. Well, in what way have we robbed you? And the answer is in tithes and offerings. Now, this is a very clear statement that to not pay God his tithe is stealing. And again, I ask the question, which is more critical? Which is more serious? Is it to steal from your neighbor or to steal from the God who gave us everything that we have, including the breath that we breathe, the water we drink, the food that we have, the clothing, the shelter, etc.? He goes on to say, You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Notice, it wasn't just the priests and Levites. The whole nation was under a curse. And so he says, Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and try me now in this, says the Eternal of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. Uh, there, there are a number of words that are added there in that last statement, uh, that there will not be room enough to receive it. Uh, some say it should be that enough. In other words, that God will supply enough. Well, when they brought the tithes, which usually had to do with grain and agricultural crops, crops into the storehouse, then there would not be enough room to be received there. Uh, is it saying that God is going to bless you to be a millionaire because you tithe? I think sometimes that has been the emphasis that we've given here. In other words, that, that enough, God is going to supply our needs. He's going to take care of us. But does it mean that he is going to literally just open the windows of heaven and pour out every financial blessing we could ever imagine? I think that there are some of you in this room that who pay your tithes faithfully. Sometimes you struggle, don't you? Sometimes it's not easy, especially with the inflation that's going on in our country. And if we think it's bad here, it's a whole lot worse in other places. As I was talking to this gentleman yesterday, uh, petrol over in England had gotten up to at one point eight pounds a gallon. Eight pounds. Now, a pound is worth, I'm not sure what it is today, uh, but it's more than a dollar. 
It has historically been, well, when I lived there years ago, back in uh, the 50s, it was $2.80 or $2.81 to to the pound. It dropped down quite a bit, and it was about $1.40. But whatever it is, it's more than a dollar. But would you like to pay dollars a gallon right now? Or $10, depending on the exchange rate? There are places in this world that are suffering a lot greater inflation than we are and a lot greater difficulties. Nevertheless, that doesn't make it easy for you. Let's continue here. In verse 11, he says, I will rebuke the devourer for your sake. So there is a promise here. That God is going to work things out for us. Rebuke the devourer for your sake. You give your tithes, you know, the grain and so forth. He would rebuke the devourer. Cut worms and different things like that. So that you will not destroy the, so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground. Nor shall the vine fall, fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. And all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. You know, when we look at our land today, we, we are $32 trillion in debt. 31 to 32. I've seen both figures. I don't know what it is. But it's around $32 trillion. That has nothing to do with your personal debt. That's just the government debt, the federal debt. I'm not even sure if that includes state debt for many. But when we look at our world today, our nation here in the United States and other countries are uh, not necessarily better off. The number might be higher here. But when you take federal and provincial, for example, in Canada or uh, other places, the debt is still very, very high. And yet God says that he'll bless us if we are doing our part. But the whole nation will be called blessed from those who see what would happen. For you'll be a delightful land, but we haven't, as a nation, we haven't paid our tithes. Now, I understand there are problems with that. Where do you pay them? I understand all that. But the fact of the matter is that our people in general, I say our people, our nations, not you, but our nations have little regard for God, little thankfulness, and little feeling of obligation to pay the rent on the land that they have. In Matthew, the 23rd chapter, and some people use this to say that, well, the tithe is done away, Matthew 23. And, and by the way, I, I know that the overwhelming majority of God's people are faithful in this. And it wasn't always easy, especially when God called you and you had several children and you were maxed out already wasn't always easy, but you worked through it, and God blessed you, and I don't know of any of you that are homeless. I think that it's been worked out, but it's not always easy. But here in the 23rd chapter of Matthew, it's easy to remember Matthew 23, 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin. We're we're talking about our, our leaves, mint leaves. Or 
anise and cumin, little tiny seeds. Not even big seeds, but very small seeds. And so they would separate out, they would count out every tenth seed, which could become very tedious, trying to figure all that out. And have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. He says, these, now it could be taken more than one way, but, you know, most people take it to mean these, justice, mercy, and faith, you ought to have done. In other words, you weren't practicing those things without leaving the others undone. So whichever way you want to read that, the point is that tithing is still important. But counting out every little tiny seed is not as important as justice and mercy and faith. And faith is very important there, as we shall see. So Jesus did not do away with tithing. In fact, what he is doing is endorsing tithing. But he's just saying that there are some things that are more important than the most meticulous of tithing. Not that we shouldn't do it, but maybe it's better just to weigh it out or to estimate in some cases generously than trying to figure out every tenth seed. We already saw in Matthew the 22nd chapter, just for me on the opposite side of the page here, that Jesus was asked by a lawyer who was testing him, which is the, the great commandment of the law. And I'll just focus on the first part of it here. Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And then he mentions the second one, which is to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, where did Jesus get this? If the Old Testament is done away with, why, why did he quote it there? Well, he quoted from Deuteronomy the fifth chapter. I'm sorry. I'll try that again. Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy the sixth chapter and verse five. And you can look at verse 37 and we'll, we'll see how accurately it's translated here. In Deuteronomy six verse five, it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. So the original commandment says, with all your strength, Jesus quoted as saying, with all your mind. And I suppose you could um, uh, debate what that, that means, but with all of our mind means with everything that is within us. And so that's the first and the great commandment. Let's go back to Deuteronomy, the 10th chapter, Deuteronomy 10. And we'll begin in verse 12. Deuteronomy 10 and verse 12, it says, And now, Israel, what does the eternal your God require of you? What is it that God is looking for from you, from me? What is his end game, you might say? But to fear the eternal your God, to walk in all his ways... And to love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And to keep the commandments of the Lord or the eternal and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. Notice that it is for 
our good. God gives us his laws not to punish us, not to make life hard on us, but for our good. Now, all of you who are parents can understand that. You make rules and laws within your home, not because you want to make life hard on your children, but because you love your children. And you know that certain things will produce good results and other things bad results. And so when you make Johnny go out there and weed the garden, you know that that's good for him as opposed to allowing him to stay uh, on his, uh, what are those, those things, those game books, whatever, the uh, video games, and just wasting his time doing that. When you tell him not to go out after a certain time of night, you know that nothing good happens after a certain time. And you want him back or you want your daughter back for their good because you love them. And God loves us. He says, which I command you today for your good. Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the eternal, your God. The highest of the heavens belong to the eternal our God. How often do you in prayer think about that? Think about the universe. We, we, we have this beautiful earth on which we live. And we have beautiful days and we have some more challenging days. But we have wonderful days and wonderful variety. And we have foods of all kinds. We have nuts and fruits and vegetables and meats that we can eat. We have all kinds of things on this earth. God supplies all these things for us. And he supplies food for the animals, the birds, and even the insects. They have their own kind of food. And it works together in in an incredible way. But we have this earth, and it's easy for us to just focus on this earth. But what about going out, the solar system, uh, the sun? that God has given us to warm us at just the right distance so that we don't fry. Although if you're in Texas, maybe you think you're frying. I've I've never understood people like to sunbathe. You know, they they get out on the beach and they get this suntan lotion and they put on their belly and their, you know, their arms and everything like that and just sit out there and fry. I've never really understood that. But people do. They love it. And that's fine. If that's your thing, well, then that's, that's fine. But God gives us all of these things. And, and the moon is just the right distance from the earth. And it gives us tides that aren't too big or too small. He gives us all of these wonderful things. And then you start going out there to our galaxy and where we're placed in the galaxy so that we can see far off. If we were at the wrong place in the galaxy, we wouldn't be able to see into deep space. And then we find out that there are billions upon billions of galaxies with billions of stars in each one. And, you know, 13, 14 uh, light years, is a thousand light years away, what is, whatever it is, it's a long way. It's a long way out there. As fast as light can, can travel, was it 14 billion light years away, something like that? I don't remember. You can look it up. It's impossible to really comprehend it, how big this universe is. And God is looking down here, and he's saying to us, 
I want to make you my sons and my daughters. I want you to live forever. I've created you for that purpose. You know, when we think of what God has given us, what is it that we can do for him? We owe him everything. So we see these verses, these passages of Scripture. It says, Indeed, the heaven and the highest of heavens belong to the eternal your God, also the earth with all that is in it. In Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6, Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6, it says, The eternal your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the eternal your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So God is circumcising our heart. He's changing the way that we think in this life. Student Army 30, verse 6. He's going to circumcise our heart. Change us. You can read over in Ezekiel, the 11th chapter. Ezekiel 11. What he does by circumcising our heart. In chapter 11 of Ezekiel. I'll start in verse 17. He says, therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples, assemble you from the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. This is talk about coming back from captivity. And they shall go there, verse 18, and they shall take away all its detestable things and all its abominations from there. Then I will give them one heart, one heart, and I will put a new spirit within them. And take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Why? Why is God doing that? That they may walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. Remember what we read in the fifth chapter of Deuteronomy verse 29 where God said, Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would keep my commandments, all my commandments that it might be well with them and with their children forever. God is going to give our peoples a new heart. But God is giving you and me a new heart today if we are truly allowing them to circumcise our hearts, so to speak, to change us, to simply obey, whether we understand it or whether we, you know, uh, have a hard time doing something. When you look at all the laws of God, there are times when all of the laws of God may be difficult to keep. When there's temptation to do something that you don't want to do or that was wrong to do. Whether it be the Sabbath or some other commandment. And while we may not kill somebody, we certainly have to fight against hatred and the attitude of murder. So there are commandments here which are not always easy to keep. But God is calling us to a different way of life. And we are to love the eternal our God with all that is within us. Now Abraham is called the father of the faithful. Let's notice over in Romans the fourth chapter. Romans 4. 
And I'll begin with the first three verses. Romans 4, verses 1 to 3. says, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, we know that that has to do with the offering up of his son. But he believed God. He, he simply believed God, whatever God said. And he did it, whether it was to leave his homeland, to sacrifice his son, or other things. Let's pick it up here in verse 16. He says, Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, the, the Jews who had the codified law there, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. This is where we get that statement that Abraham is the father of the faithful. Abraham is a remarkable individual. Let's notice over in John, the eighth chapter, we'll just explore this a little bit, just how important Abraham was. Because if you start looking at all the figures in the Bible, whether it be Noah or Jacob, Joseph, start looking at different individuals in the Bible, and you find that Abraham stands out. Not that the others don't, but he stands out in a very special way. Notice John 8 and verse 31. I'll read here a little bit of the passage. It says, Then Jesus said to the Jews, who believed him, if you abide in my words, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. But they answered him, they were cynical as well, we're Abraham's descendants, and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? And Jesus answered them, verse 34, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. In verse 37, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, physically speaking, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. And they said, well, Abraham's our father. Oh, yes, he was physically, but not spiritually. And Jesus said, verse 39, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham, but now you seek to kill me. You do the deeds of your father. And he speaks there of Satan the devil there in verse 44. It's interesting that they look to Abraham as their father. Now, Abraham was not only one who was a man of faith, but he also was a man of obedience. Notice over in Genesis 26. It takes faith to be obedient. And this is talking about Isaac in verse 4, and I will multiply your descendants, or make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Then Genesis 26, verse 5, why? All, why are they going to be blessed? Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, 
my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. That's pretty thorough when you think about it. Not just the commandments and laws, but the statutes as well. And God's charge that he had given him. God's commandments specifically to him. You read this to some of those who got hung up in the apostasy of worldwide and you ask them, what, what is it talking? Well, I know what it's not talking about. Not talking about the Sabbath. Well, wait a minute. Second chapter mentioned the Sabbath. Not talking about the laws of clean and unclean. Well, wait a minute. You have uh, Noah was to take clean animals by a certain number and unclean by a certain number. And, and we have the law of tithing. Uh, but it's not that. You know, so you, you begin to wonder, well, what laws are they that he's talking about here? And when you think about it, let's notice over in Genesis, the 14th chapter, this very famous account that uh, I'm sure you've heard many times. But Genesis 14 and verse 14, uh, Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, or actually his nephew, and he armed his 318 soldiers as servants, uh, that were born in his house, and he went to pursue these individuals as far as Dan. This is because they, this group of kings came in, and they took uh, the people of Sodom and various other places there, took them captive. And so after the battle, after Abraham had rescued Lot and all the people of those cities, it says in verse 18, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. Now, we, we don't know much about this Melchizedek, at least at this point, but it says he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. He's not talking about Abram being possessor of heaven and earth. He's talking about God Most High is the possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, that is, Abram, gave him a tithe of all. A tithe of all. Interesting there. Some say that, well, we only have to pay tithe on agricultural goods. But if you read the rest here, you can see that it involves more than that. I won't take time for more of that. But let's think about Abram. Let's go over to Hebrews, the seventh chapter. Because here is the father of the faithful, and this is the first place that we ever read about tithes in Scripture. And yet, Abram knew something about tithing, and he gave to Melchizedek a tithe of all. Let's read the first few verses. Verse 1 of Hebrews 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem... The focus here is on Melchizedek, this chapter and, and other chapters here. The focus is on this Melchizedek, king of Salem. Salem means peace. Priest of the Most High God, who met Abram returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Notice further, verse 3, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, 
but made like the Son of God, notice, made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. People have all kinds of ideas about who Melchizedek was, but I think it should be obvious he's the king of righteousness, the king of peace. He has no father, no mother, without genealogy. There are people who try to reason around that and say that this was, what, Seth, I think it was, or various other ones. How great was Abraham? The word Abram is used in Scripture 61 times. When his name was changed to Abraham, it was used another 251 times in Scripture. And some of those are in genealogies, but most of them are not. And when you combine Abram and Abraham, we find 312 times in Scripture. Now, I know that just numbers like that are not always meaningful, but sometimes they are meaningful. And when you have a man's name used 312 times, that's significant. And here is a very famous, very important individual in Abraham. And yet Abraham gave tithes to this Melchizedek. And verse 5, And indeed, those who are the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law. So Levites were to take a tithe. People were to pay their tithes to the Levites. Levites took a tenth of theirs and went to the priests. That is, they could take them from their brethren, so to speak, that uh, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. So they they were a couple generations away from Abraham. So in that sense, they were paying tithes to Melchizedek, yet unborn, but they would come from Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who uh, who had the promises. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. So, whoever this Melchizedek was, he had to be better or greater than Abraham. I think that pretty well leaves it out of being some other figure, obscure figure in Scripture who might have been mentioned a few times. This clearly was the one who became Jesus Christ. And so the remainder of this chapter is showing how the law of tithing had to be changed to go back to the the whole priesthood and everything involved in the priesthood from Levi back to Melchizedek or the Melchizedek priesthood, priesthood of Jesus Christ. You can read the remainder of it. I don't have time to go into that right now. But that's really what it's saying here. We owe God everything. And, and I'm sure that many of you, when you get down your knees and you pray, you think about all the blessings that God gives. And you thank Him for your food. You thank Him for the clothing, the shelter, the home that you have. You know, I, I, I think back, I've used this story before, but my wife and I, I think it was about the fourth year of our marriage, and we got a little bit of extra money saved up. It took us quite a while to save up. I think it was $90. 
And we were going to recover a chair that had been given to us. It was fundamentally sound, but the cover was threadbare. And when we came across a, uh, we had these books of material, and we finally came to something we could both agree upon, but then we started looking around. Well, that won't match the curtains, so we'll have to get new curtains. And those lamps that we got, they were, people gave us some green stamps when we got married, and so we, redemption stamps, and we got those there, but that's not exactly what we want. And we started thinking about our whole house, and we didn't have a dining room. Well, we had a dining room table, but it was not a nice dining room set. And we had a bed, but not a bedroom set. And we started thinking it took us months or a year or more to save up $90. We, we like so many young people, I guess, wanted to have it all. And, and I think back on that time and what God has blessed with us now. I'm I'm just amazed. And and I'm sure that many of the rest of you feel the same way, especially those of us who are a little bit older. We we look back and we think what God has blessed us with was so very much. And so many of these things we had little to do with. You know, inheritances, uh, selling a house when the market is way high, and buying into an area where it's depressed. That sometimes happens. It doesn't always happen that way. We've, we've experienced it both ways, but at least the last time we sold, we owe God everything. Psalm 24. Psalm 24. We, we don't tithe so that we'll be blessed. In, in reality, we tithe because God tells us to. And we tithe because we love God more than anything else. In Psalm 24, verse 1, it says, The earth is Lord's, or the eternal's, and all is fullness. The world and those who dwell therein. That belongs to God. Everything that we have belongs to God. Psalm 50. Psalm 50. And verse 10. It says, for every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. And God says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine in all its fullness. And then over in Acts, the 17th chapter, when Paul was talking to the Athenians and pointing out that the gods that they worshipped were nothing. He says here in Acts 17 and verse 28, he says, For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For in him we live and we move and we have our being. You know, God has given us everything that's good for us. And for most of us, he's given far more than that is necessary for just existing. I know there are people in other parts of the world that are just barely existing. But that's not most of us here in this country and Canada and UK and many other countries. 
Malachi 1 verse 14 said, But cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow, but sacrifices the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king. Now, that wasn't just the priest. That's talking about the people who brought the sacrifice. And he said, I am a great king. But if you bring something that is less than what is supposed to be, it's blemished, that was against the law, he says, cursed be the deceiver. And my name is to be feared among the nations. God's name is to be feared. We're commanded to love the eternal our God with all our hearts, with all our souls, and with all of our minds and strength. And one way that we show our love to God is by putting him first and paying him a reasonable 10% for our food, shelter, clothing, the breath that we breathe, the water we drink, and all that we have in this life. So let us be respectful and thankful for what we've been given by the one who has given us everything. And I know that most of you do that. I understand that. And not only has he given us everything, but he's the one who offers us life forevermore.